Well, just before I read our passage, I wanted to begin by thinking about uh, something that is really one of the worst things that could be true of you as a human being. It's an attribute that if it's, if it's true of you, you feel pretty crummy about yourself and the people in your life, they want less and less to do with you. So this attribute that I'm talking about is uh, desperation, to be desperate. If you're a desperate person, you tend to feel pretty horrible about yourself and the people around you, they tend to not want to spend time with you. If you're desperate for friendship, for example, uh, no one really wants to be your friend. I can speak from experience. Uh, I was thinking back to grade three and, uh, and I remember at times specifically thinking, man, I don't have, I mean, I, th- I don't really have any friends. I mean, I think maybe I did, but I thought I didn't. And so I thought the best way to get more friends would be to go and tell the kids in my class that I don't have any friends and that I, I, I just to lay that before them. And I, I imagined that they would, you know, respond with an overwhelming offer of friendship. So that's what I did one a lunch hour. I went around and I said, I don't, I don't have any friends. No one likes me. And I just kind of let it hang there. And uh, to my surprise, there was not what I thought there would be, which was, I know I like you. I'm your friend. Look, so-and-so is your friend. It just was really awkward. I felt worse about myself. They, if they were thinking of being my friend, wanted less and less to do with me. Uh, turns out if you're a kid with no friends who is asking others uh, to be your friends, you'll get less friends because you're desperate because no one likes that. And if you're desperate for love, it's even worse. Like if you go on a date and there's some sense of desperation there, that's not going to go well. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. That was my experience, but uh, <laughs> I have to ask Don. But uh, but if you can imagine giving any sense, like if you were about to pay for dinner and you said, you know, look, I, the least I can do is pay for dinner. I mean, you said yes, right? You, you agreed to go out with me. No one has up until this point. So thank you so much. Let me pay. That's not going to lead to a second date. Desperation in life is not a good quality. It's not one that we want for ourselves or we don't want to be around people who are desperate. And yet there are many times when we find ourselves in really a, a desperate situation. There's many types of desperation. We can feel desperate financially. We can feel desperate relationally. There may be a medical situation where we just feel like there is no hope because that's really what it means to be desperate, that you feel that there is no hope. And yet, though desperation is toxic on so many levels, spiritually speaking, to, to grow in faith, to grow in your understanding of God, there are many times when desperation is absolutely necessary. Because it reveals something about ourselves that we don't see when we feel as if we got everything under control. In our text this morning, there are two stories, two kind of intertwined stories of two people who are very, very desperate. The first is a man of high status. His name is Jairus. And the second is a poorer woman. Both of them are well acquainted with desperation. The woman in particular has been desperate for a long time. So what I'm going to do is read the whole passage through, verse 40 to 56, and then we are going to pull out uh, some, some biblical truths about the connection between desperation and hope, in particular, gospel hope. So I invite you to read along or just listen along. I'm going to begin in verse 40. Here's God's word to us this morning. Now when Jesus returned, he was away on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he comes back. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had his, uh, 
for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Again, that's God's word to us this morning. Uh, My argument for this morning, uh, drawn from the details of the text here, is, is simply that even in great times of despair, there is hope because God is at work. And in fact, he is often doing something in those times of despair that he could not do in us if we were at peace with the circumstances of our lives. So our key idea, it's up on the screen, is this. Jesus works in and through our desperation to bring lasting hope to all who believe. Jesus works in and through our desperation to bring lasting hope to all who believe. So that's the connection between desperation and hope. Uh, We have three points for the sermon, all about desperation. So point number one Desperation exposes our need. Now, most of the time, this is the very thing that we don't want uh, to be exposed. We don't want to feel needy. We don't want people to see our need. Uh, most of the time, we try to orchestrate our life so that, so that we feel at peace with it. And at the very least, people looking at us would say that, man, they got, that person has everything under control. And yet what we see here are that there are times in life which we know when we are, we are brought to the brink of desperation. The, the two characters, the two people, Jairus and the woman, you'll notice with him in particular, he seems like a person who would not be in need very much of the time. If you look at verse 41, we get a little bit of background about him. Uh, there came a man named Jairus who was the ruler of the synagogue. So that means he was like an elder, a leader in the church at the time, as it were. Um, this means that he was a man of a considerable amount of wealth, of respect, of power. Uh, he would have been the man in town that you went to if you had a need. There's something going on, some problem. You would go to him. He would have the connections. He would have the resources. He was used to helping others. But there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, people were shocked to see him laying down before Jesus on his face, begging for help. If they didn't know what was going on, they would have said, what, what's going on? Like, why, why, why is Jairus, why is he begging And of course, we know the answer. The answer is that he had a 12-year-old daughter at home who was dying. And we can safely assume that that Jairus had tried everything. All of the connections he had with the best physicians, all of the, the money that he had, all the prayers he could offer, he had done everything he could 
to try to help his daughter. And all of those things only served to show him that really he was hopeless. Really, he did not have the strength or power to do what needed to be done in his daughter's life. We see him there in verse 41 and 42. Falling at the feet of Jesus, he implored him, begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, 12 years old. You notice it, it was the circumstances that led to his desperation that led him to see his need. He was a man who always had need of Jesus, but it wasn't until this moment that he really realized it. And the same is true of the woman. Now, for her, it's a little bit different, right? Her desperation was not like a 911 call right now. I need you. It was something that had been going on for a while. And yet for her too, though, there was a point at which she finally came to Jesus. Look at verse 43. It says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, the same amount of time that Jairus' daughter was alive. She'd been suffering. She had spent all of her living on physicians and she could not be healed by anyone. Now this discharge of blood, uh, probably commentators say is like a uterine hemorrhage. So she'd been just bleeding slowly over the the past uh, more than a decade. Uh, This would not just have meant physical pain or discomfort discomfort for her. Really the greater weight that this would bring was all of the social stigma that would come for someone in this condition. Back in the Old Testament in Leviticus 15, it tells us there's some really clear instructions from God. Someone with this kind of bleeding would would be considered spiritually unclean. So that meant that she was separated from the rest of the community. She wasn't allowed to go over to someone's house. She wasn't allowed to to touch anyone. She wasn't allowed to worship in the temple. Just just imagine her life for for 12 years in, in not a very big community, but she was always on the outs. She felt isolated. She felt understandably desperate for a long time. And she had tried to find a cure. It says there that all her living uh, was spent on physicians. Uh, In the book of Mark, it it even gives us more detail. Here's Mark 5.26, talking about the same story. It says, And she had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Uh, In the Talmud, which is like the uh, book of... Jewish teachings, it gives us some of the recipes, some of the cures for this kind of ailment. And they were, I was reading them, things like you would boil wine and add Persian onions and mash it all together. And then you would, you would sit the woman at a crossroads and you'd give it to her and then you'd speak these words over her. So you can imagine, first of all, it's kind of like superstitious kind of stuff, but also she was drinking all sorts of concoctions, whatever they could come up with, because the physicians... When, when it didn't work, whatever, you know, she wasn't healed, they wouldn't say, oh, look, take your money back. I'm sorry, it didn't work. They'd say, you know what? I got another idea. Let me try something else. And so week after week, year after year, they'd been coming up with new potential cures and asking for more and more money to the point that now she was totally broke. In fact, it's, it's when she's totally broke. It's when she's feeling worse than she ever had before because of trying to find some other cure. It's at that point that she really sees her need for Jesus. Have you noticed that kind of pattern in your life? If you're a person of faith or or not, have you noticed that, that it's at the times of greatest difficulty that we tend to look for help outside of ourselves? I mean, the, the, the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes is there for a reason because it's at those those overwhelming times of life that we, we tend to look for help beyond our own strength, beyond our own resources. Even for those of us who, who have come to faith, 
We know that this is true, that there's a pattern in our life where we, we come to Jesus again and again, not when things are going great, not when we're flying high, but when things are difficult. See, it's in our desperation that we maybe see for the first time or are reminded of our essential need. We are a needy people. We are a dependent people. And yet the truth is we are also a very stubborn people. We, I mean, if you're married here, you can just ask probably the person next to you whether, whether you are very, whether you admit very readily your need. More than likely, ask a friend. They, they will say, no, that's not our tendency. Our tendency is to do everything that we can in our power before we go to help for anyone else. And we see that in our text. Because the interesting thing is that both Jairus and this woman, both of them had had uh, experience with Jesus before. They knew him. If you look back earlier in the book of Luke, there was a time when Jesus actually spoke in the synagogue, which means that Jairus, he would have given Jesus permission to come and speak in a synagogue. And while he was there, it was an amazing morning. Someone came forward with an unclean spirit. Jesus healed the man. Everyone was amazed. Here's uh, Luke 4, verse 36. They were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The people were amazed, but the religious leaders, what we see in the New Testament is that when Jesus does these kinds of things, they're not so much amazed as, as threatened and, and kind of angry because they didn't believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah. And they felt like he was leading people astray. And so more than likely, Jairus would have been fairly critical of Jesus, had some meetings and say, we're not, we're not going to let that happen again. Jairus had opportunity to express some sense of faith after having seen Jesus do amazing things. We don't see any evidence of that. Now with the woman, it's also interesting because that very same day when, when Jesus healed in the synagogue, that sort of evening, he healed many people from their physical infirmities. Now look at verse 40, back again in Luke chapter 4. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had uh, any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and, they, and healed them. So in this relatively you know, small town, there was Jesus healing everyone. The neighbors were telling neighbors, people were telling, come, come. He healed everyone, and yet this woman was not amongst them. Now, why is that? It could be. It could be that, I mean, she's separated from the community. It could be that just no one went and told her. It could be that she hadn't heard. But more than likely, what happened is that she was not yet at a place where she felt she really needed to go to Jesus, where she had some other cure in mind, some other potential, some fear in her heart where she, she didn't go. What we know is that there was an opportunity for her to be healed, and she didn't yet take it. But, but by chapter 8, something had changed. Something had changed in, the, in Jairus' life. We know what that is. We, we see the desperation with his, with his daughter, but for her also, there was a point at which she realized that there was no other hope. She needed to come and see Jesus. And so both of them were waiting. Jesus had gone across the Sea of Galilee, done some things. And as soon as he gets back, it's as if they're both just waiting for him to come. They realized their need and they knew that it was only in Christ that they could find it. See, this is the value of desperation. This is, this is the good that God does in the desperate times in our life. It's a humbling thing to come to the point of realizing that we don't have what we need in of ourselves to find peace or joy or happiness or an answer to the, to the difficulties. For some of us, I mean, this is how we came to faith. 
where we, we thought we didn't need God at all, and yet the circumstances of life, in a sense, conspired against us, and we realized, look, when it comes right down to it, there are things that I, I, I can't make happen on my own, especially when it comes to issues of life and death. But it's also true for those, like when we're in faith, when there's, you know, we're living our life, that there's highs and lows. It's, as I said, in the lows, when we tend to be more aware, we see more clearly the reality that we're always in need. We always need Jesus. We know that, but it's when things go wrong that we tend to actually be on our knees, be in prayer saying, Jesus, I I know I need you. Maybe that happened to you this week. It, It did actually happen to me this week that there was, See, as, as on the weeks that I'm preaching, my emotional equilibrium tends to be tied to my sermon prep, which isn't a good thing, um, but it's, it's tough to get away from that. So meaning if things are going well by Thursday, Thursday, I hope to get my sermon done and ready to go. Then I feel, I feel great. feel amazing. God is good. Everyone's good. But when things are going difficult, man, it's, I feel so low this, this week, uh, by Thursday, I, I actually thought things were going all right. I had a sermon pretty much done. I was planning on getting up early Friday, you know, working on it and uh, patching things up, you know, like I usually do. I got up Friday, though, and I started to work through the, the sermon that I had written. And man, it was just one of those times where things just didn't fit together. The words that yesterday had seemed like they made sense, they didn't make sense. And I started getting kind of anxious because in my mind, I was thinking, man, I wasn't planning on working on this much longer and like it's not fitting And I came to the conclusion, which I didn't want to come to, which I I think I just need to rewrite this whole thing. And the reason that was very frustrating for me, two reasons. One, by that point, I was like, why didn't I see this earlier? Like, I did all that work. Why why couldn't I see it? But two, uh, it was my oldest son, James's birthday that evening. And so we had think, we were trying to get ready and I had to go and say to Don, Don, I had to do all that work. I said, I have to go back. I I have to rewrite this thing. Oh, I was so mad at myself and kind of, if I'm honest, kind of at God. God, you knew I was going to be here. You knew you're the one who, why didn't you tell me? So Friday comes and goes, I, I work, I pray. And that's what I'm saying. I'm on my knees in a more like heavy sense of, I need help. Please God, I can't do this. I had thought that that was the humbling experience that God had in store for me, but he was not done with me. Cause I, I again got the sermon to where I thought was, you know, pretty much done Saturday morning. I'm going to get up. I'm going to finish it. Saturday, very early morning, Friday night, almost 2 a.m. Uh, Thomas comes in our room. He is coughing. He is wailing. I sit upright. The very first thought in my head was, Thomas, don't you know that I have to get up early? Why are you, why are you sick right now? I'm going to be so tired. I was, of course, Don's like, Matt, he needs, she's much more compassionate. So I was very frustrated <laughs> at my life, at my son. And so I'm there and I'm trying to help him. And then the next thing happens, which is you know, not Thomas's fault. He just, he was sitting in the middle of our bed and he just threw up in the middle of our bed. And I was like, oh, now we got to do laundry. Not that I ever do laundry, but the point is I was very, very angry. I was very frustrated, but here's what happened. Interestingly, I went from great anger. Like Don could probably see it in my face, but then there was this moment of clarity where I just realized I just had to pray, Jesus, man, I'm not, if it's just me, I'm not going to be able to get this done. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be up all night. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get back to sleep. I'm not sure how tired I'm going to be. Jesus, I, I just, I trust you though. I trust that you will bring a word for your people. And the thing is, I, I say that to myself. I pray that at the beginning of every week. But I had so much greater clarity at that moment because all of my energy, all of my wisdom, anything that I had to bring to the table was gone. And I felt like Jesus was saying, 
yeah, that's actually the way it is all the time. You're just clouded because sometimes things are going better or I'm bringing more ideas to you earlier. See, that's the dynamic of the Christian life. One where we are greatly blessed by God and by the grace of God, often we come to a place where things just go horribly wrong. And we're reminded of the fact that Jesus, man, I, I need you. I know I need you. But in this moment, I see my need for you. That is the value of desperation. That is how God works. That's our big idea. Jesus works in and through our desperation to bring lasting hope to all who believe. So firstly, we saw that desperation exposes our need. That's good for us. Secondly, though, desperation reveals the grace of Jesus. Now, we see this also in our text, especially since you, you, know, you might think that Jesus' response to both Jairus and the woman, it, it could have been fairly critical. I mean, there's reason to look at their approach of Jesus and think, man, you're just, you're just using Jesus, right? I mean, he could have said to Jairus, Jairus, I was at your synagogue weeks ago. You saw my power. You know who I am. You haven't had a conversation with me at all until this point. Now that you're in need, now you come to me. That, that's why you're here. Not because you really believe in me, but because you need something. He could have said the same thing to the woman, right? You, you had opportunity to, to come and be healed but now you're treating me like a magic lamp, like some sort of mystical amulet. You just have to touch me. You get what you want, and then you're on your way. He could have said, woman, don't you, don't you really want to know me? Don't you, don't you want to have faith in me? Or do you just want what I can give you? We know Jesus would never talk that way. But they do both seem fairly opportunistic. It does in some way seem like they really are just kind of using Jesus. I mean, shouldn't, we, shouldn't our faith in Jesus be about more than just what we can get? And the answer is yes, it should. Yeah, we should not treat Jesus like a cosmic butler or like a genie in a bottle where we just, we just don't, we ignore him for months and then when things get really bad, we come and we pray. That's, that's not the nature of a genuine faith relationship. But, but what we see here about the grace of Jesus is that it is so deep and so wide that if there is anyone who gives even a hint of acknowledging their need and coming to him for help, he responds with an overwhelming sense of compassion, overwhelming love. I mean, look at this, this poor woman. She's trembling. She's fearful. What is his response? Look at verse 45, the, the whole interaction. Jesus is, you, it's weird because it seems like he's going to call her out. Like if you first read it, you'd think Jesus just let her go. Like she's healed. Just, she wants to be anonymous. Just let her go. But he makes a point of calling her out. And it kind of seems at first like, why, why bring all this attention to her? But, but then we see why. So he says, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, you know, Peter says, look, there's lots of people touching you. And he says, no, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. And look at his words to her. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Those are such gracious words. The word daughter, you realize this is the only time that Jesus ever calls anyone daughter in the whole New Testament. That, that word daughter is packed with grace and meaning and belonging. To this woman who's been ostracized from her community for 12 years, he calls her daughter. He's saying essentially, look, you are now part of the family of God. He's filling her heart and her mind with a sense of belonging. He's giving her more than just physical healing. 
He's healing her soul. He's being so gracious and tender towards her. And then the next words are even more so. He says, your faith, your faith has made you well. It's your faith. What, What he's saying to her is that it's not just that you would touch me as I pass by. I mean, lots of people were touching him. They didn't get healed. The thing that did it was, was daughter, you, you believed in me. There, there was a, a moment of hope and trust. It's not a full-fledged faith. We can see that. But he's affirming and encouraging her. He's saying, look, this is the source of hope and healing in your life. Trusting me. Trusting me above all else. Trusting me for healing. And if you look at the last little bit, he then sends her on her way with, with such a great blessing. He says, go in peace. And really there, he's, he's teaching her a bit about a life of faith. He's saying, look, you can have peace. You can have peace in spite of the trials. Your, your peace, the peace that I bring is an answer to the despair that you are feeling. And, and the capper for all of this, that he's doing it in, a, in the public sphere. See, if she had gone and been healed, she would have, that would have been great, but she would have still had to convince everyone that she's healed. There would have been a sense of hesitancy now in front of everyone. What he's doing is he's not, only, he's not only showing her, look, you're now part of the family of God. He's restoring her place in the community. It is an overwhelming show of grace to a woman who is fearful, sort of, sort of trepidatious, and, and someone who really does not fully understand what her faith even means. What he gives her is a picture of the gospel of the fact that each person in our sin is rightly cast out of the presence of God. Every one of us separated from the community of faith and the holiness of God. And yet, because of the work of Jesus, which has not yet happened, but he's pointing forward to, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we who were also unclean are made clean. We who should be cast out are welcomed in. And the grace that he's showing this woman is the same grace that every person who turns as she did to Jesus can experience. The other thing that's very gracious about this is his tenderness. See, there are many times where we will have opportunity to speak to someone who is just at the very beginnings of faith, like just starting to understand. And for those of us who really love love the word, there's a tendency in us to be overcritical. To, to be constantly correcting someone who's new to the faith. No, that's not right. That's not exactly what it, that's not really what the sovereignty of God means. Let me explain the gospel again. We see a beautiful picture here of Jesus just, just encouraging, affirming, welcoming her in, even when her faith is so very thin. I remember when I first came to faith, I was, I was in a youth group that I was invited to in my teens. And uh, we went on this bus trip to Cairnport, Saskatchewan for this thing called Youthquake, big youth rally. And I remember uh, on the way back, I, I, I had just started to think of myself as a Christian. I'd been there for a few months. I hadn't had any experience before. And they had an open mic on the bus. And they said, look, come and share what God's doing in your life. And so I got up and I started to share. I, I, just, I, didn't know what I, I just wanted to express to everyone, look, I, I feel like I'm a part of you. So I got up and I, I said something like this. I remember, um, uh, you know, uh, look, uh, I let Christians are good, I think I said, um, the church is good. Like we help people. Uh, we help poor people. We do good things in the community. And I'm just really glad that, that I'm part of the church. I sat down. Looking back, I realized I did not understand the gospel at all. As I articulated my faith, it was all about what the church was doing. Not anything about Jesus, anything about sin, anything about how much I needed him. Nothing about that. 
But you know what didn't happen when I sat down? A youth leader did not sit beside me and say, Matt, we're really glad you shared, but look, and you, you were wrong, okay? You don't really understand what you're talking about. Let me explain the gospel to you again and have your faith go. They didn't say that because it would have crushed me. See, as the church, we need to be so tender with those who are taking the first steps of faith. And hopefully there are going to be many people in our lives that we are discipling, that we are growing. And, and do we see that Jesus, Jesus is always truthful, but he's also always so gracious. And it's especially in those times of desperation in our own lives and in the lives of others when we have an opportunity to, to be gracious as Jesus was and lead people to experience the grace of Christ. It's in the times of desperation that that, that happens. So that's our second point. Desperation reveals... The grace of Jesus, because he welcomes us in. He's kind, even though we should be far from him. Thirdly, desperation reveals the power of Jesus. Now, we've already seen some of his power. He's healed this woman, seemingly without even intending it. She just touched him. Her, Her faith healed her. It's amazing. But the greatest expression of his power is yet to come. We know the climax of these, these two stories. It's when Jesus shows his power over life and death. The fascinating thing is that Jesus, it seems like he intentionally delays his journey to Jairus' daughter so that it would be too late, doesn't it? I mean, you can imagine Jairus there when Jesus is talking with this woman. He must have been beside himself. Jesus, I know this woman is sick, but look, my daughter, remember, she's she's dying. She's like almost dead. You you would think that Jesus, if he was most compassionate, would have said to the woman who touched him, listen, ma'am, could you stay right there? I want to talk to you. I've got some things to say, but there's this crisis emergency. I got to go. He doesn't say that. He, He almost intentionally delays things. He just waits. He's very calm. He's not worried until the servant comes and says, all is lost. Your daughter is dead. There's no point bothering Jesus. But see, that's exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted the situation to become so desperate that everyone there was very clear that there was no hope because he wanted to demonstrate not just his power over uh, physical illness, but but actually over death itself. Look at the way he speaks um, in verse 50. So, So Jesus hears the servant say, look, there's no reason to come. And what does he say to Jairus? Do not fear, only believe and she will be well. So you can imagine Jairus saying, believe in what? What do you mean believe? The time for believing is, is done. She's dead. That's, that's the end of the story. But Jesus starts walking, right? Everyone goes with him. He goes, he gets everyone in the room. Everyone's weeping and wailing. What does he say? Do not weep. Do not weep for she is not dead, but she is sleeping. And they laugh at him because of course she's dead. They know what a dead person is. They know the illness that she's been dealing with. They know that there is no more hope. And yet Jesus is just building dramatic tension bringing everyone to the place of recognizing. It's almost like he's saying, look, everyone, is everyone, has anyone got any other options here? Anyone else have a card up their sleeve? Everyone is already mourning the death of this child. And then he does a miracle without much fanfare. I always think that's interesting about Jesus. You would think if you were about to do something that was going to blow everyone's mind, there'd be a lot of buildup, right? There'd be like a, a big prayer, some sort of incantation, maybe some drums, something going on. None of that happens. He just reaches, takes over her hand. Look at verse 54. Taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. He's very matter of fact, give her, give her some food. And her parents were amazed. 
but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. See, Jesus very simply reveals the most amazing power that anyone has ever seen. The power to bring life because he is the author of life. He reveals the truth that for those who believe in him, death is no longer a final enemy. In fact, if we really understand the gospel, understand the hope that Jesus brings because of his death on the cross, because of his substitutionary death for each of us, it now means that we should see death very differently. That in fact, for the Christian, death is more like sleeping than anything else. Why? Because sleeping is a momentary darkness which is preceded by a glorious morning light. And that is indeed the gospel hope that a Christian has. That that is the hope that each one can have when we believe in Jesus. It is now an entirely different state of affairs. In a situation which, which is the most desperate situation any of, us, any of us would ever be in, right? I mean, when we're dealing with issues of, of life and death, that is when the stakes are the highest. That, that is when, when our hearts are, are trembling, when when we can barely eat, we can barely sleep because of our own imminent death or the the death of someone we love. But you notice Jesus, he's not freaked out at all. He's not worried at all because it's more like this child is asleep than she's really dead. In fact, that's the terminology. You see that more times in the New Testament, that those who are dead, I mean, dead for years, but died in faith, they, they are asleep. It's not that she was really asleep. She was dead. But it's like they were asleep because when Jesus returns, we arise. Like waking up in the morning to a glorious morning light. That is the, that is the true biblical way to see death in light of the power of Jesus. This is why in 1 Corinthians, we see this. This is how now we are to, to see death. Death, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There's no sting. There's no worry anymore for those who know the one who has power over life and death. In my struggles this week, uh, to write the sermon, God was gracious in many ways. One of the ways that he was very gracious was to bring me uh, something that I didn't know about before, which I think illustrates this idea of being sort of life and death and the gospel hope in it. I was listening to a podcast, as uh, you know that I do very often, and, um, and there's this thing that they were talking about, which I'd never heard about before. It's something that exists in the U.S. Uh, Federal Department of Social Security. It is a list of all of the people who, have, who die in the United States of America. It is the best name for any list I've ever heard. It is called the Death Master File. That's what it's called. It's a thing. The Death Master File. It used to be an actual list on paper. In 1936, they started it, and they just wrote down everyone's name. Now it's, of course, a, a computer file. And the, the states gather the you know, details of everyone who's died. They send it to the federal government. And about every half second, there's a new name added to the Death Master File. Now, interestingly, if you pay a subscription, you can have access, public access, to the Death Master file. And it sounds morbid, but actually it's very helpful because for, like, credit card companies, they will use this list to look for fraud. So if there's someone who is taking, you know, the identity of someone who's deceased, they can compare and match. And if they sense fraud, they'll just cancel their credit card. It's really, really helpful. The best thing about the Death Master file, though, is that because it's government bureaucracy, they sometimes make mistakes. So there's people who end up on the death master file that are not dead. And you can imagine for those people, it's fairly inconvenient for the government to think you're dead when you're not dead. Uh, your credit cards stop working because everyone thinks you're a fraudster. And you have to prove that you're alive, which from reading some of the documentations, it's harder than you think. But, 
Once you prove you're alive, the department, they have a term for what they do. This is the best. The term they use is we have to undead that person. I heard them talking about it. They were, they were interviewing and they would say things like this. Oh yeah, uh, Sally Jenkins. Yeah, she'll be undead by Friday. We just have to get the paperwork going. Oh, they'll see Tom. No, he's not. He can't be undead yet because we haven't seen his proof of life. They, that's how they talk about it. And I was like, yes, that is the gospel, isn't it? That there, there's a sense that we are dead, officially speaking. So official that our bodies are in the ground. We are on the death master file list. And yet, and yet in the greater list, there's another book in heaven, the book of life. We're in that book because of our faith. We're not going to stay dead. We are going to be undead. I thought that was beautiful. I thought I would share it with you. Who knew that the U.S. Department of Social Security could be so gospel rich, right? They probably don't even know it. So this is, this is God's word to us this morning. That because in the very worst situation that any of us could imagine ourselves at the point of death, we have hope even there. His point is, look, whatever else is going on in your life, and they're, look, in a room like this, there's probably many things. But whatever else is going on, the words of Jesus remain true. He says to Jairus what he's saying to us. Look, do not fear. Only believe. Believe what? Believe that I am at work, even in these situations. Believe that should the worst happen, you still have the hope of life. Believe, trust in me that I will continue to do my good work in you so that you will come to a place of greater joy and satisfaction, both in this life and in the life to come. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the hope that Jesus brought, not just to Jairus, not just to, to this woman, but to everyone who believes. I wanted to end by reading just two verses from Psalm 30. Because I think they really give us this, this picture again of the sense that we are even in death, we are just awaiting a greater sense of awakening. It says this, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. See, Christians, we are mourning people. We are people who are always expectant of the new light of day because we have a God who always brings us that new light and that new joy, no matter how desperate things are. Again, I'm not sure where you are this week. I'm not sure to what extent you are feeling in the darkness, in the night, in despair. But my hope is that you will see the word of God to you. That there is a way that each one of us can believe. And it looks just like it did with Jairus and with this woman. They literally fell at the feet of Jesus. We can do that in our prayers. In our disposition of heart. To say simply, Jesus, I know that I'm in need. I know that I can't, I can't go forward on my own. That I need your help because of my own sin, because of my own situation. Would you please flood my heart with your grace? May I hope ultimately in your life, because you were resurrected from the dead, may that inform my life here and my hope for what is to come. I'll read the key idea one more time. Jesus works in and through our desperation to bring lasting hope to all who believe. May that be true of each one of us today. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you uh, for this picture of your grace and your power. I pray, Lord Jesus, that it would indeed inform our lives today. I pray, Lord, for those of us uh, who have faith, Lord, but 
in some ways, some area of our life, we've forgotten how much we really need you. God, I pray that, that in the difficulties, perhaps, that are there, that we would be reminded and that we would, we would come to you again, eager to receive from you blessing and power. I pray, Lord, for those here that, that might not have faith. I pray, Jesus, that even in this, they, they would sense your leading, they would sense your, your guidance, and they would, they would sense your desire to reach in and give them a hope in whatever it is that's going on in their lives. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe. Help us not to fear because we see clearly that you are God of all things, including life and death. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.